0: Mark chapter 14, verses 29 to 31. Thanks, Stephanie. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight. Before the crow crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I'd have to die with you today, sorry, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guard and warmed himself at the fire. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You are also with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entrance. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to, to those standing around them, This fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you're one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses and he swore to them, I do not know this man you're talking about. Immediately the cock crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken to him. Before the cock crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. It's lovely to see you all this morning. For anyone who doesn't know me, I'm Dave. A um, bit of a funny start. Families are complicated. If you could put up the first picture, Gives us an idea of how some of us feel about families. How I feel spending Christmas when I visit my family. <laughs> now, I'm sure most of us have someone in our extended family who we find a little bit of a challenge. There's usually that person who we love, well, because they're family. But actually, sometimes we prefer loving them from a distance, where we can bring to mind all their loving qualities and actually when we spend time with them and we are reminded of some of their more challenging qualities we remember that actually we love the person because they're our family but perhaps we don't like them all that much as I reflect on my own relationship with God sometimes I think is that how he feels about me? Am I that slightly annoying member of the extended family? I know that God loves me. The Bible tells me he does and it says it again and again. I'm just not that sure that he likes me. I mean occasionally I'm not that bad. Maybe on those days he likes me a bit but most of the times I just get things wrong all the time. On those days I feel like he must be exasperated with me. Even the good things I do are often motivated by uh, selfish motives. My question this morning is, is, does God relate to us like we are that annoying member of the family? He loves us but he doesn't really like us all that much. And then perhaps a more important question is actually what determines God's heart or his disposition towards us? To try and answer those questions, we're gonna be looking at the story of Peter, one of Jesus' disciples on the night before Jesus was crucified. Now at the beginning of that night, Peter seems very confident that Jesus likes him. In, in Peter's mind, perhaps that, be, that is because he is so faithful to Jesus. However, as the night unfolds and Peter makes what has become known as one of the biggest failures in the Bible, he begins to learn that God's view of him was never based upon his faithfulness to Jesus, but always upon Jesus's faithfulness to him this is a hard lesson for Peter and this passage only shows us the beginning of this lesson for him but the rest of the Bible shows us that failure is not a roadblock to God's affection in fact it's only when we truly acknowledge our own failure that we can truly experience his affection for us we'll look at the events of this passage under three headings firstly false confidence secondly it gets personal and then thirdly the look so first point false confidence Peter is one of my favourite men in the Bible he is a guy who has an incredible ability to put his foot in his mouth here is a guy whose confidence far exceeds his ability I mean more than once Peter wrote checks that he had no hope of cashing There are lots of words that you could use to describe Peter but I think the best one that I've come across is the modern Hebrew word chutzpah. You see chutzpah doesn't just mean confidence it means extreme self-confidence bordering on audacity. It's the quality of overstepping boundaries with no shame. Now this passage gives us a great example of the chutzpah, I think you have to make this hand gesture as you say it, of Peter. After After Jesus shares the first ever communion, he tells the disciples that they are all going to abandon him. As our rooted friends have just so wonderfully read to us, in verse 27, Jesus says, you will all fall away. Look at Peter's response in verse 29. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not Jesus responds, truly I tell you today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Now later that same evening, Jesus and the disciples are in the garden of Gethsemane when a large group of guards approached them who were armed. One of the people standing near Jesus takes out a sword and cuts off the ear of one of the high priest's servants. Now we know from the other gospels that this was in fact Peter. He is still full of chutzpah. His confidence seems to far exceed his skill with a sword. Now maybe, I'm being unfair, maybe Peter was incredibly skilled with a sword and actually This was a deliberate display of his precision. I will take you piece by piece. (laughs) However, far more likely is that Peter was wildly swinging his sword around in an attempt to take someone's head off, and the very best he could manage was an ear. It's actually a level of ineptitude which is quite hard to fathom. To use that much force, cutting someone's ear off without doing any other damage, is actually impressive. But... Jesus was not impressed we know that from Luke's gospel Jesus rebuked Peter and he healed the servant Jesus is then arrested and in verse 50 we're told then everyone deserted him and fled now Peter's courage may have deserted him temporarily but I'm sure in his mind although the others had completely run away he was simply making a tactical withdrawal before then following at a distance and attempting to return to Jesus' side look at verse 54 it tells us that Jesus is taken to the house of the high priest and Peter followed at a distance right into the courtyard for Peter this still isn't over here's a question for you though have you ever been so tired that you feel physically sick? Peter was tired when this night started and it's now the wee small hours of the morning The massive hit of adrenaline he'd have had as he swung his sword in anger was now wearing off. The warmth of the fire would have had an almost hypnotising effect. In my experience, when that level of tiredness washes over a person, it tends to simultaneously wash away any false confidence. What was he even doing here? He was a fisherman from Galilee and he'd followed Jesus to Jerusalem. He tried to prevent Jesus from being arrested, but Jesus rebuked (coughs) him and just seemed to let it happen. He was well out of his depth and he was absolutely exhausted. You also were with the Nazarene Jesus, said a woman walking past in verse 67. You can almost hear the tiredness in Peter's response. Verse 68, I don't know or understand what you're talking about. He got up and he walked away. That fight or flight feeling is beginning to return but it seems that Peter has got no fight left in him. The same servant girl then sees him again. This time she doesn't address Peter directly. She speaks to all those around Peter. This fellow is one of them. Peter denies it a second time. His answer was perhaps forceful enough that she knows not to push it any further. But now the idea has got into the heads of all those sitting around Peter. Surely you are one of them for you're a Galilean. A simple no was not gonna be enough this time. Verse 71, he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know this man that you're talking about. Immediately the cock crowed and Peter remembered. He broke down and he cried. Denying Jesus would have been bad enough but doing it only hours after publicly stating he would die before disowning Jesus is unthinkable. Now he may well have been tired, he may well have been confused but how was he ever going to show his face again? Surely this is the end of the road for Peter. I mean this this encounter completely destroys his credibility It's a bit like someone flying a private jet to give a speech on climate change. The words and the actions are completely opposed to one another. And yet this incident is recorded in all four of the Gospels. Why? Because God wants us to see that he doesn't work despite our failure. He works through our failure. And in fact, he loves to show his strength in our weakness for Peter this is a hard lesson but it begins by getting personal and that's our second point it gets personal Peter's been hearing for three years that Jesus had come to rescue sinners he had come for the sick not for the healthy now Peter had understood the theory but up until this point in his life where is Peter's confidence it's in himself He's confident that he will remain faithful to Jesus. But in this encounter, he learns the lesson that all Christians must learn. Ultimately, if we put our trust in ourselves, then our story will end the same way that this chapter ends. Verse 72, he broke down and he wept. There is a world of difference between understanding that Jesus died for sinners and acknowledging I am a sinner for whom Christ died This encounter is included in all four of the Gospels because the theory alone is not enough We must understand like Peter that we have failed to be faithful and we need a saviour Has that happened in your life? Has the theory about Jesus personally touched your heart? Have you come to the point where you realise you need Jesus? Not just to give you the things that you think you need but to meet your deepest greatest need your need to be rescued from sin and from hell. Have you realised that you are a sinner who needs a saviour? Now we can sometimes think this is just a message that new Christians need to hear but the truth is this is a daily battle whether you have been a Christian for a week or whether you've been a Christian for many decades Have you ever wondered why we see such highs and lows in our faith? It's largely because where we place our confidence keeps on shifting Throughout this passage Peter's confidence that Jesus is for him is based on his own behaviour. When we do the same we'll either be like Peter at the beginning of this passage or like him at the end. At the beginning Peter is arrogant and I think we can see why. Peter's not just one of the twelve disciples he's actually one of the inner three. In his mind Jesus must have picked him for what he brought to the table He looks down on others and he seems pretty low on compassion. We're often in danger of thinking the same. We can think, I'm doing all right. I've read my Bible, I pray, and I've barely committed any sins recently. We begin to think that our acceptance by God is based on our own hard work, which inevitably means we will look down on people who we think are not doing as well as us and we will look resentfully towards those who we think are doing better than us. We can easily begin to slip into a faith which is far more concerned with how we look on the outside than the actual state of our hearts. Because we primarily think Jesus gives us what we deserve, when something bad happens, we'll think it's completely unfair and we'll grow to resent him for not acting in the way we think he should act. Alternatively, we'll be like Peter at the end of the passage, where he despairs. As the cock crows he realises what he's done. A few hours ago he was emphatic that he would never deny Jesus and now here he is calling down curses to convince people he doesn't even know Jesus. When our confidence is in how good we think we've been or how often we read our Bible, or how often we pray or go to church, how will we react when we inevitably mess up? If Jesus only accepted us because we were performing well, we'll have to conclude, well, we're no longer accepted. We'll begin to assume that God couldn't love someone as useless as us. Far from having any assurance, we'll be full of guilt and shame. Far from seeing that we need a saviour, we'll see Jesus as someone who brings a burden that we just cannot meet. Here's the crucial thing and the place where I started this morning. The way we think of Jesus will determine how we relate to him. The big question is, is he for us? I think one of the most important questions that a Christian can ask themselves is how do you think Jesus looks at you in your sin not after it not when you've repented of it not when you've said sorry or tried to change but in your sin as your sin unfolds how do you think Jesus looks at you then this is our third and final point the look you see Mark tells us that Peter hears the cock crow and then Peter remembers what Jesus said Luke adds an extra detail which makes this even more painful for Peter this is Luke chapter 22 verse 60 and 61 Just as he was speaking the rooster crowed the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him I would go as far to say that the way we think that Jesus looked at Peter in this moment will determine the kind of faith that we have Jesus looks at Peter as his words of denial are still hanging in the air Jesus who at this point in the night would have been bruised and bloodied looks at one of his disciples as they are sinning what did he communicate in that look? I knew you'd do this Peter I even warned you that this would happen and you still let me down You're not Peter the rock, you're Peter the denier, you're not even a pebble Perhaps that's how Peter felt but that is not how Jesus looked at him You may well ask how could you possibly know how Jesus looked at Peter in that moment? Luke doesn't record it Well that's because Luke doesn't need to because the rest of the Bible tells us again and again how God looks at his people even as they fail He looks with compassion Look at these verses that are going to come up Psalm 103 He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities As a father has compassion on his children so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him or Isaiah chapter 30 yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you therefore he will rise up and he will show you compassion Lamentations 3 though he brings grief he will show compassion so great is his unfailing love or what about the words of Jesus himself John chapter 6 whoever comes to me I will never drive away This is the great mystery of this passage. It's the great mystery of the Christian faith. We've been focusing this morning on what happens in the courtyard with Peter. But the real history-making drama was going on inside the high priest's house where Jesus chose not to defend himself so that he could defend his people. So that he could defend us by being sentenced to death, by dying in our place. Jesus died for his people whilst we were still sinners. Was Jesus saddened to see Peter sin? Of course he was. Jesus is never indifferent to sin. In fact sin arouses God's anger. But the reason that we call the day that Jesus died Good Friday is that on the cross God's judgment against sin is not directed towards the believer but wholly upon Jesus. This means that when Jesus looks at one of his people even as they sin he looks not in judgment because that has already fallen he looks in love and compassion. If you're a Christian this is how he looks at you even in your sin he looks at you with love and compassion. This is what it means to be saved by grace and not by works. It means that salvation comes from what Christ did for you, not what you do for him, not from your obedience but from his obedience. It's hard to believe isn't it? The writer and preacher Dane Ortland wonderfully explains the way many of us struggle to believe such amazing grace could be true he says this We are limitless in our capacity to perceive reasons for Jesus to cast us out We are factories of fresh resistance to Christ's love Even when we run out of tangible reasons to be cast out such as specific sins or failures we tend to retain a vague sense that given enough time Jesus will finally grow tired of us and hold us at arm's length No wait, we say, cautiously approaching Jesus You don't understand, I've really messed up in all kinds of ways but there's perversity down in me that is hidden from everyone I know it all Well the thing is, it isn't just my past, it's my present too I understand But I don't know if I can break free from this any time soon. That is the only kind of person I'm here to help. The burden is heavy and heavier all the time. Then let me carry it. It's too much to bear. Not for me. You don't get it. My offences aren't directed towards others. They're against you. Then I am the one most suited to forgive them. But the more of the ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll get fed up with me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. A month ago, I got a phone call from my younger brother. He's supposed to be heading to a wedding over the weekend, but their childcare plans had fallen through. Do you think you could have Olivia for us? Of course, I say, it would be our pleasure. I mean, it's been a little while since I've had a baby stay for the weekend, but it can't be that hard, right? Now at three o'clock in the morning on the second night, I was beginning to question whether I had made the right call. Olivia had had a really snotty cold and she was teething. She'd been grizzling and crying and she was stopping me from sleeping. When I think about my relationship with God, I sometimes think that's how he must feel about me. Maybe he'd been a little too hasty in bringing me into the family. He must look at me and think, he just doesn't seem to be getting it. I wonder if I can give him back. But then I picked Olivia up out of her cot. She was in that crying but not really awake state that babies often are when they're feeling ill. She was wriggling and uncomfortable. She didn't know what to do with herself. In that moment, all that she brought to the table was weakness and need. I simply held her and she stopped crying. She buried her head into my chest and she went back to sleep. In that moment, my heart was more drawn to her than it had ever been before. Her helplessness and her need didn't drive me from her. It brought me closer to her. Christian, do you know that that is how God feels about you? Your sins and your failures don't push him away from you. They draw out further his heart of compassion towards you. Isaiah chapter 30 said, he longs to be gracious to you. He doesn't show his grace begrudgingly, he longs to show it to us. Jesus longed for this moment with Peter, when Peter would finally realise he had a great need that he couldn't meet himself. Jesus longed to show Peter grace. I mean how do we respond to such audacious love? Well the rest of the Bible shows us how Peter responded, realising that Christ's love was not based on his performance but on who Christ was and what Christ had done changed Peter's life almost beyond recognition rather than looking down on others he begins looking with compassion because he knew that he too was a failure but that's okay because he was a failure who had been rescued by Jesus Peter no longer feels obliged to share the good news about Jesus he spreads the good news because it is the best news he's ever heard and he wants other people to share in that news. Peter no longer lives for his own reputation, he lives for Christ's reputation. Peter doesn't obey to earn Christ's acceptance, he obeys because he's already been accepted. He no longer sees God's rules as some burden that he cannot meet, but instead of a one, as a wonderful way of living out his relationship with Jesus. Will you let your life be changed by Christ's completely undeserved gift of grace? Will you rejoice in the fact that he not only loves his people, he actually likes us as well? For those trusting in Jesus, I hope this morning has brought a great sense of encouragement and reassurance. But I do want to make something clear. For those who don't believe in him, the Bible offers no reassurance or comfort whatsoever. The wonderful promises of compassion that we have looked at this morning are for the believer. We all must make a choice. Either Jesus takes our punishment for us or we bear it ourselves. They are the only two options. Don't wait to make that decision until it's too late. God's not looking for people who never fail, he wants those who recognise that we are failures, people who see that they have done nothing to earn God's love. Why not come to Jesus and discover that his love was never based on our obedience towards him but wholly upon who he is and what he has done for us.